welcome to Hebraic Insights in the Gospels. Join us every Sabbath on Zion Road Radio for a look at the life, deeds, and words of Yeshua Messiah and his followers. From the Torah-centric Hebraic perspective, they were originally lived and written in. Today's program is on John chapter 1, verse 35, through chapter 2, verse 25. Please get out your Bible and follow along. What was the most important priority Messiah had in his ministry? Who were the first disciples of Messiah, and what can their story teach us about moving in God's will? How did Messiah handle other people trying to influence his ministry? How long was Messiah's ministry before his death and resurrection? Did he ever try to control other people's decisions or let the possibility that they might make the wrong choice deter him from doing his ministry? If not, does respect for free will mean always being nice to everybody without ever holding them accountable for their actions? Or does Yeshua give us a different example? Why should we be bold to speak the truth, stand against evil, and do all that God has called us to do in our lives? Stay tuned throughout today's program for Eliyahu Ben David's insight on these questions and more In John chapter 1, verse 35, through chapter 2, verse 25. And now, here's Eliyahu. Shabbat Shalom, friends. Very exciting being right at the beginning of the book of John. And, of course, in our last meeting, we learned where Yeshua really came from. And this week, we're going to see him setting out upon his ministry and how things worked out at the very beginning of his ministry. So I think this is going to be interesting. And what I kind of found interesting here is how John kind of starts out and he's going, giving you every day. And then he gets to a certain point and he just gives up because so much is happening. He can't do it day by day anymore. And so when we start here with John's prophetic call, you might be thinking, 
well, what about the other Gospels? They tell us that Yeshua started out by going into the wilderness and dealing with the devil for 40 days. This sort of thing really drives unbelievers crazy because they think, oh, well, this is a different story here in John. It doesn't say anything about that. The Gospels contradict themselves. You probably have heard that, right? Well, when you understand that John wrote this Gospel probably near the end of the first century, he already had the other three. If you were John and you were writing, would you just want to write all the same things the other people wrote? Or would you want to fill in the things they left out? So that's what happened. And you find this a lot with John. He just leaves out the stuff that people already had in the other Gospels and puts in the things that he personally had experience with. And here is kind of cool because he's really starting from his own experience, from the point of his own experience with Yeshua. And I think that's really interesting. So at the time we're picking this up, Yeshua has already had that experience dealing with the devil. And we don't want to leave that out in our thinking, because let me tell you something. If you get called into the ministry, you're going to start by dealing with the devil. And so that's just going to happen. But that happened before John came into the picture. So we're taking up here. Now, when we mention John, now we're talking about John the Baptist, Yohanan the Immerser. And John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Yeshua as he walked and said, Behold, the Lamb of Elohim. They must have known what that meant, right? I hear people sometimes talking about the apostles as if they were stupid and didn't understand anything. You know, but no, they did. They knew from the scriptures what it meant that he was the Lamb of Elohim. And they were disciples of John. Do you think John taught them anything? I'm sure he did. He was a prophet of Yahweh. Taught them a great deal. He taught them enough to know it was time to go. So these two disciples, one of them being John, who is reporting this, followed Yeshua. This is on this very first day now that Yeshua has come back. And so on this first day, Yeshua picks up his first two disciples, Andrew, the son of Jonah, and John, the son of Zebedee. So... Then they move along, and one of these two was Andrew. And Andrew was Simon Peter's brother. And what's the first thing he does? Wants to tell his brother, right? This is how it works when we learn the truth about Messiah, we meet him, what do we want to do? We want to share it with the people we know, the people we love. And it's kind of nice to read how that's what happened in the first century and that that was a big part of how 
people came to Yeshua. It's just like how it happens today with us. So he found his brother, and he says, we found the Messiah. They knew the Lamb of God was the Messiah. And they knew they found him. And so he brought his brother Simon to Yeshua. And Yeshua gave him a new name. So now we have Andrew, John, and Simon Peter. And the day is not even over yet. So now the second day happens. We're on the next day. And Yeshua was determined to go out into Galilee. And he found Philip. Now, it doesn't tell us much about Philip, but apparently he was a friend, probably, of Andrew and Peter. He was from Bethsaida, the same city they were from. So that's probably how it happened. And Yeshua said, follow me. And he did. Now, at this point, I'm thinking about John the Baptist. And I'm thinking he was sent as a forerunner to prepare the hearts of the people. Do you think he succeeded? I think he certainly did with these men because their hearts were ready. When they met Yeshua, they knew who he was. And when he said, follow me, they followed him. So I think that's credit, I think, to John the Baptist as well as to these men, and of course to Yeshua. Well, now Philip found Nathanael. So this is how it works, isn't it? It reminds me of the thing about if you took a penny and then you doubled it every day after three weeks or a millionaire or something. It's kind of like that, isn't it, how it's working here? Well, anyway, Philip said to Nathanael, We found him of whom Moses in the Torah and the prophets wrote, Yeshua of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Now, Moses didn't write Yeshua of Nazareth, the son of Joseph, but he did talk about a prophet like himself. And that's what Philip is talking about. So Nathaniel says, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Well, you have to realize about Nazareth, it was just a little, you know, town, sort of out of nowhere, was not considered to be special, and it was meant not to be considered special, because there were some special people there that didn't want to attract a lot of attention. So it had a reputation for not being special. So this is why Philip is saying, well, you know, what's in Nazareth? Uh, excuse me, Nathaniel said that. So Philip said to him, come and see. So he came to see. And you know what? That's to his credit. I see a lot of times that people have preconceived ideas like this, and you can't break through those ideas. There's a lot of people that would have said next, well, I'm not going there, right? But he was open-minded, 
had an open heart to go and see when he had that invitation. So he did, and when Yeshua saw him, he says, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom is no deceit. Yeshua already knows this man. He knows his heart. He knows who he is. He knew this about all of these disciples. And, you know, it's kind of neat. It's kind of like he's just like walking along and the sheep are coming in behind him, right? And later on in John, Yeshua says that, that he's the good shepherd. He says the sheep know his voice. This is how it is. So they were coming in behind him. And well, Nathaniel says, how do you know me? And he says, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. So Yeshua obviously saw, oh, this is the one that's coming next, right? Spiritually, he saw that, saw him under the fig tree. And Yeshua is just moving in the Father's will. Do you notice that? He's not stressing over any of this. <laughs> He's just moving in the Father's will, and it's just happening. He's not handing out tracts. Not that handing out tracts is bad. He's not going from door to door. Not that going door to door is bad. But the thing is, he didn't need to do any of those things. He just needed to walk in his Father's will and his Father's will unfolded in his life without a lot of stress over what he was doing. How will I build up my ministry? You know, what am I going to do? No, none of that. So we're into now the second day, and he still has four disciples. But Nathanael then says, Rabbi, you are the son of Elohim. You are king of Israel. And Yeshua makes a promise to him. You will see heaven opened and the angels of Elohim ascending and descending. If you follow Yeshua, you'll see that too. It would have been great to be there then, but the people that were there then they're going to see the same thing that you're going to see on that day. So now he's got his first five disciples, and it's only day two. It's pretty good, huh? Well, what happens next? His third day. This is just day three of his ministry. And He's taking a break. Yeshua and his family have friends. And they've been invited to a marriage feast in Cana of Galilee. And his mother is there. And it appears that his brothers are there too, probably sisters. And Yeshua was invited says, with his disciples to the marriage feast. And I'm thinking whoever invited him to the marriage feast 
probably didn't really know yet that he had started his ministry and who these disciples were, because they've only been with him for two days, right? So probably there's a little discussion, and maybe with his mother. And so they said, well, they said, why don't you come and bring your family? And then she'll say, well, you know, Yeshua's got some new friends. And they say, oh, well, bring them too. I think a lot of this happened, considering what happens after this. But anyway, the disciples are invited too to the marriage. You know, in the first century, a marriage feast was a big deal. And it's very different than how it is for a lot of us today. You know, we're used to, if we want some entertainment, we turn on the TV set or go to a movie or something. Most of the time, we can have most any kind of food we want. You can have a feast anytime you want. It wasn't like that for people back then. Most of the time, you know, people lived very ordinary lives. And we're talking about the people who were friends of Yeshua and his family. And they were not the poorest of the poor, but they were ordinary folks in terms of their economic status. And so we can assume that their friends were like that too. So these kinds of folks, when there was a marriage feast, this was a really special time. It's a time of just tremendous joy and happiness. And of course, marriage is a big thing for Israelites, for Hebrews. And it really was back then. So this was quite an event that they got invited to. And the party was just getting going, and the wine ran out. So Yeshua's mother says they have no wine. Why is she concerned about their wine? Well, they're her friends, right? And she's probably thinking, well, you know, they're so generous. They invited everybody to come, and now there's no wine, and they're going to end up being embarrassed. And she didn't want that to happen to her friends. So she's getting anxious about it. Mothers do that sometimes. They get kind of anxious about things sometimes. And so, you know, she got kind of anxious about that, and she says to Yeshua, they have no wine, as if to say, you need to do something about this. Can you picture that? You're looking at a real family, right? Apparently, she didn't see the halo around his head. But anyway... Yeshua said to her, woman, what does that have to do with you and me? My hour has not yet come. Put another way, he said, mom, that's none of your business. Isn't that what he said? He's basically saying, my ministry is none of your business. Was it his mother's business? You know, this is what happens when people set out in a new ministry. Other people are going to have to get used to it. People who in the past have had more input in your life, they're going to have to learn. They need to step back because you have a new priority in your life. 
that doesn't have to do with them. And that's just how it was for Yeshua. He knew his obligation was to do the Father's will, not the Mother's will. And so even though I'm sure he loved his mother, was very kind towards her, he had the priorities right in his ministry. And he told it to her in a way so that she would understand that's how it was. He also said, my hour has not yet come. Now, what I think about this is, they translate this so this sounds all spiritual. My hour has not yet come. Actually, this word that's translated hour can simply mean a moment. In other words, he's saying, I'm planning on doing this anyway, but it's not the right time yet. In other words, Mom, you're pushing. Back off a little bit. That's basically what he's saying. And you know, I can relate to this, can't you? Sometimes we can get anxious about things, and we have to be careful that we don't push beyond where the Father's will is at, because he's got his own timing. And you see what was happening here is Yeshua was moving in his Father's timing, but Mom was feeling anxious, and she was getting ahead of things, is what was happening. And all very understandable, and I think an important reminder to all of us. So anyway, right away, she took those words to heart and said to the servants, whatever he says to you, do it. So she is basically saying, okay, this is out of my hands now. It's all up to him. Do what he says, not what I say. And that was the right thing for her to do, right? And you know, it's interesting that after this, we don't find another incident like this with Mary. That, you know, she got the picture. It's time for me to let go here. It's time now for him to do the work he's called to do. And so that's what she did. So, you know, Yeshua had a lot of support from his family, quite opposite to how it's normally thought. But he had a lot of support from his family. They were very interested in what he was doing, as you can see with her. But things had to get in the right order. As he was just starting out in his ministry, this is day three. So it doesn't say how much longer he waited, what happened in between, whatever. The reason why he had waited doesn't talk about that. It just tells us when we get to this miracle, here's what happened. There were these six pots of water. And this was up to 30 gallons of water that we're talking about. That's a lot. And Yeshua had those pots filled all the way up. And he said, draw some out and take it to the ruler of the feast. So they did. Apparently this was the custom. There was the ruler of the feast who was akin to the friend of the bridegroom. You've probably heard that before. 
who was kind of overseeing the wedding. So the bridegroom wouldn't have to be bothered with the details of the wedding. He had his best friend doing it. So they took this wine to that person. And of course, he tasted the wine. And it was interesting what he said. Everyone serves the good wine first, and when the guests have drunk freely, then that which is worse. You've kept the good wine until now. So sometimes at weddings, some people get a little tipsy. Have you ever been to a wedding where that happened? At a wedding feast? It does happen. I find it interesting that the fact that there might have been some people who were tipsy enough they couldn't tell what wine they were drinking didn't stop Yeshua from turning water into wine in that place. This is an amazing thing about Yeshua. And it's something that sets him apart from religion, sets him apart from the Pharisaical thinking completely. The Pharisees had a theory which they thought guarding the Torah meant you would have additional rules, so you wouldn't even get close to breaking a commandment in the Torah. So, for example, one of their rules was you mustn't say the name of Yahweh. You use a substitute name because the scriptures say not to take his name in vain, so you just shouldn't say it at all. I don't think anybody stopped to think, is that what Yahweh wants? Does he want to prevent his people from speaking his name? So you see, this religious attitude sometimes actually inhibits people from the real intent that Yahweh has in the scriptures. But it's a religious attitude, and we find this in all kinds of religion, certainly in Christian religion, we find it. And many times it's well-meaning. The idea is to preserve righteousness and holiness and so on, but it's really misguided. This sort of religious thinking is really misguided. Yeshua, on the other hand, believes in your free will. And he thinks it's up to you how much wine you drink. And so he's not concerned, really, with whether you drink wine, don't drink wine, or how much wine you drink. You will be the person that will pay the price, you know, if you go down the wrong road, right? It's just what happens. That's up to you. And this is something that's really lost in religion. And this is why so many times people are kept spiritual babies and never grow up because they never have an opportunity to make a mistake. You know, maybe what needs to happen in your life is you need to drink too much wine, trip over something and fall down and hit your head. And then you realize, wow, I really shouldn't drink that much wine. Now you're not gonna drink too much wine. End of story. It doesn't have to be a big deal, right? Of course, you will have those people 
who become alcoholics. What about them? Well, isn't that their problem? Is it your problem? Was it Yeshua's problem? I like that about him. He puts the responsibility where it belongs. And we've seen this in two things here. First of all, with his mother, he's drawing that clear line. Mom, this is not your responsibility. This is my responsibility. Very clear boundary in terms of responsibility. Same thing with the wine here. He's not worried about whether some people are going to drink too much wine. He puts the responsibility on each of us to make our own decisions. And then when we do, we prove who we are, don't we, by the decisions we make in our life. Look at these other men that came and joined themselves to Messiah. He invited them to follow. They could follow or not. There were some, not in this lesson, but some whom he invited to follow, but didn't for various reasons. I think in the world to come, they're going to regret that. But it was their decision. You have your decisions to make, right? Nobody here is going to tell you what to do. You have your own decisions to make on the basis of his truth and your life. You have to make those decisions. So the fact that some of the people obviously got tipsy was not his responsibility, was not a problem for him. It says, this beginning of his signs Yeshua did in Cana of Galilee and revealed his glory and his disciples believed in him. I think this thing that I'm talking about is what was revealed to his disciples. Not only the miracle, which was an amazing miracle, but I think the nature of this miracle and that it was something so aimed at the ordinary people. You know, they didn't have good wine to drink all the time. And it was just so thoughtful of them and without really concern about what other people would think. And I think this was the glory of Yeshua. And another thing about this is Yeshua didn't care even what his mother thought about him. Didn't care what other people thought about what he did. He moved in his father's will, whether it offended people or not. And a lot of times it did offend them. He was not really that concerned about what people thought, so long as he knew he was walking in his father's will. Well, here it says his disciples believed in him. And they just saw that in him. They knew he was the man. After this, he went down to Capernaum, he and his mother, his brothers, see, his brothers are there too, and his disciples, and they stayed there a few days. Now, at this point, there's a lot more that happens when they go down there to the Sea of Galilee at Capernaum. And 
John just says they stayed there a few days. He doesn't say how long that is. If you look in the other Gospels that we've already gone through, for instance, I have Mark here, he tells us some things that happened there. It says, Yeshua withdrew to the sea with his disciples, and a great multitude followed him from Galilee. He went up into the mountain and called to himself those whom he wanted, and they went to him. He appointed twelve that they might be with him and that he might send them out. John never even talks about that. All of a sudden, he's just got these twelve disciples. We'll find that as we go along in John. John doesn't even try to explain how that happened or where that happened because it's already explained for us in the other Gospels. So those things happened here, and it's just good to remember that that happened. John 2.13, the Passover in Judea was at hand, and Yeshua went up to Jerusalem. This Passover is not mentioned in any of the other Gospels. The other three Gospels only tell us about one Passover, and that's the Passover where Yeshua had his last Passover and was crucified. John is very careful to lay out the chronology for us regarding these Passovers. This is the first one. So at this time, when the first Passover happens, Yeshua was immersed by Yohanan in the seventh month. Now it's the first month for Passover. So we're talking about six months that have gone by. And then we have this Passover. Let's see the rest of these. John 5, 1. It says, there was the Jewish festival, and Yeshua went up to Jerusalem. We'll get to this, of course. But I just want to go through and show you these Passovers. This one here does not call it the Passover. It just simply calls it the Jewish festival. And there's lots of reasons why we should believe that this is the Passover and not a different festival. And one of the things is, just in the previous chapter to John 5, 1, we have Yeshua saying, there are yet four months until the harvest. Behold, I tell you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, that they are white for harvest already. Well, the day after Passover is the first day of harvest, where the first fruits of the barley harvest are offered up to Yahweh. So in this part, in John 4.35, this is obviously after Sukkot, but still with four more months until Passover. So clearly, what it must be talking about in John 5, 1, is the Passover. Then we've got Passover number 3, John 6, 4. Now the Passover, the Jewish festival, was at hand. And then eventually we get to another one. Now the Passover in Judea was at hand. Many went up from the country to Jerusalem before the Passover to purify themselves. So there are four Passovers. And this means that Yeshua's ministry was three and a half years long. Now, I know that there are some 
teachers of the scriptures, even in messianic circles that say that Yeshua's ministry was just one year long. And what they're going on is the fact that in the other three Gospels, they're just telling you about one Passover, just the last Passover. So they're thinking, okay, there's just one Passover. There must be just one year. And actually, John helps to straighten that out for us so that we realize that Yeshua's ministry was three and a half years long. And of course, this ties in with prophecies in the book of Daniel, which we're not going to get into. So now returning to this first Passover, he's been in his ministry really closer to five months in the sense that he had to deal with the devil first. And this is his very first Passover. And he goes into the temple and he finds them selling the oxen, the sheep, the doves, changing money, all about money and commerce, all about selfish things, not about Yeshua. And he made a whip and he threw everybody out of the temple. And all of the animals, too. Turned over the money changers' tables and ordered them to take all this stuff out of there. And the disciples remembered the prophecy, zeal for your house will eat me up. He had zeal for his father's house. And he wasn't going to put up with it, with what they were doing. Yeshua was a bad boy in the minds of a lot of the people back then, certainly in the minds of the money changers and the people who were making money out of the temple. And very, very different, I think, than the attitude that you have to always be nice. Sometimes it's very justified to not be nice. You know, sometimes action needs to be taken. This was his father's house. This was not up for debate. And he drove them out. Now, in the other Gospels, it tells us how he drove them out at the last Passover. I think you can pretty much assume this is what he did every Passover, that he went up to Jerusalem and started his Passover by driving out all the money changers and thieves. And that seems like a pretty good way to start your Passover. But it did not get the favor of the elite who were making all the money from the temple. They didn't like it very much at all. I think the people loved it. I think they did. I think to see somebody finally standing up for the truth made them feel pretty good, even if they didn't have the courage to do it. And so that's probably why he could do this every year. Because, you know, the politically minded, they care so much about what the people think. They probably didn't really dare to stop him or try to stop him. And they asked him, what sign do you show us seeing that you do these things? 
Like, you have to have some special authority to do this. Of course, he did have special authority, and they should have figured that out. He said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. I like that answer. They didn't understand that. And you know what he was doing? He really was just giving them a jab, wasn't he? He did not like these people. Because he could see their heart. And they were evil. And he didn't like evil. And he still doesn't like evil. And if we follow him, we shouldn't like evil either. And don't feel bad about standing up against evil. That's part of why you're here in this world. You know, that's part of why we're here. And we have to realize, in his ministry, he is setting an example, right? He's setting an example. He's showing us that we need to have courage to stand up against evil, too. Now, he didn't really hurt anybody. He didn't send anybody to the hospital or something. That's not the point, is it? It's to let them know, no, you can't do this here. That's what he was doing. And these people, they were not serious asking for a sign. They were just looking for something they could use against him. So they were just offended by what he said, saying it took 46 years to build the temple. Will you raise it up in three days? They were so offended by this. When finally they did act against Yeshua, this is one of the things they brought up at his trial, right? But he spoke of the temple of his body. He was telling them the truth, but they couldn't hear the truth. His disciples took note of it, though, when he was raised. Many believed. Tells us now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name, observing his signs, which he did. The lowly people, the ordinary people, are oppressed all the time. All the time. And it's still true now. All the taxes, all the paperwork, everything the system does is a burden on the poor people. The rich people, they may have to pay the taxes too, but they can send their accountant to take care of it. The people are always, always being oppressed. And when they see someone that just speaks the truth, like Yeshua, that will not be intimidated and will just do the right thing, no matter what the establishment wants them to do, that is going to grab the heart of the people. So many of them believed in him because of what they saw. But Yeshua was not fooled by this, because the crowd is very fickle. The crowd may love you one day, but the next day, something comes out in the news saying that, you know, some bimbo in Russia 
did something terrible with you. And they all believe it. And now they hate the person. This is the crowd. You cannot invest your heart in the crowd and what they think of you. So even though there was all these people who already were saying they believed in him, it says Yeshua didn't trust himself to them. He didn't invest himself in their favor. It says because he knew everyone and because he didn't need for anyone to testify concerning man, for he himself knew what was in man. If he wasn't going to let his mother tell him what to do, he's certainly not going to let the crowd tell him what to do. Because he is there to please his father, not the crowd. And when I look at this and I look at what he is saying, what he did, and I compare that to most of the ministries that I have seen that are very big in public, I see a very different picture. Because they do trust themselves to the crowd. In fact, they play to the crowd, don't they? And so many times their ministries are all about pleasing the crowd. That is the source of the power in their ministries is pleasing the crowd. That's not the way Yeshua was. And it's not the way we should be. We must put our Father first. And when you do that, what happens is those people who see that and respond are responding for the right reason. Not because the ministry is trying to please their flesh, but because their heart is crying out for righteousness. So this is why those of us who follow Yeshua, we have an obligation to be this way, to be true and honest and not looking to the people as the source of the ministry, but looking to Yeshua as the source of ministry. Don't look for the praise of men, but the praise of Yeshua. been listening to Hebraic Insights in the Gospels. The scripture verses referenced in today's program are John chapter 1 verse 35 through chapter 2 verse 25, Mark chapter 3 verse 7, Mark chapter 3 verse 13 through verse 14, John chapter 5 verse 1, John chapter 4 verse 35, 
John chapter 6, verse 4, and John chapter 11, verse 55. Further teachings and study materials on Messiah's ministry, the Twelve Disciples, ministry service, Messiah in Bible prophecy, the book of Daniel, and more Bible prophecy, walking in the Holy Spirit, faith, following Messiah, and the covenant with Israel, along with many other related topics, can be found at our membership site, Zion Tabernacle. Sign up is free. Just go to zion.net. That's T-S-I-Y-O-N dot N-E-T. New programs on the Gospels will be airing every Sabbath on Zion Road Radio. Tune in next Shabbat to learn more from Hebraic Insights in the Gospels. Shabbat Shalom! The Christian church system has claimed that Israel is cast off and done away with. However, Jeremiah chapter 31 verse 35 through verse 37 says, Thus says Yahweh, who gives the sun for a light by day, and the ordinances of the moon and of the stars for a light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. Yahweh of hosts is his name. If these ordinances depart from before me, says Yahweh, then the seed of Israel also shall cease from being a nation before me forever. Thus says Yahweh, if heaven above can be measured, and the foundations of the earth searched out beneath, then will I also cast off all the seed of Israel for all that they have done, says Yahweh. The sun is still here. The sea still roars, and the stars still shine. Learn how Yahweh's nation Israel is literally written in the stars as a permanent testimony of our God's commitment to His covenant with Israel. Visit our community site, Zion Tabernacle, and sign up as a free member to view Eliyahu ben David's seminar entitled, One Nation Written in the Stars. Now available free of charge as part of Zion Fast Track, our introductory video course. 
Zion Fast Track will give you the big picture of what God is doing with His remnant nation in this very generation. To sign up and learn more about what other free resources you'll get as a Zion Tabernacle member, go to zion.org and click Join Us. That's T-S-I-Y-O-N dot O-R-G. Then click Join Us. Just 